The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. What are the most successful change leaders of today doing that makes them stand out? Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership. Our program is produced by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown University. We'll explore the inner game of transformational leadership, sharing insights from renowned leaders and faculty from our world-class leadership and coaching programs. Now, from Georgetown University, here is this week's host. Good morning. This is Kate Ebner, and I am your host today. I'm looking forward to our conversation with Larry Hirshhorn. Larry has been a management consultant for 35 years or more. He has a PhD in economics, has served on the faculty at Wharton, and is the president and founding member of the International Society of Psychodynamics of Organizations. He's been published in the Harvard Business Review, and today we're going to be actually exploring a conversation about the psychodynamics of organizations and specifically about how leaders and consultants can work together to navigate these dynamics. Um, Good morning, Larry. Hi, good morning. Good to speak with you, Kate. Thank you. I'm so glad you're here with us today. I think that you are um, bringing us a couple of topics and angles that are uh, not always easy to get at. And so I'm excited to have this conversation. I think it's going to be beneficial to people who are leaders, uh, really thinking about some of the challenges they face organizationally. I think it's also going to benefit those of you out there who are consultants and who are really interested in understanding how to be better how to be more effective at what you're doing. Um, So to jump right in, um, Larry, you and I had a chance to meet a few months back, and I so enjoyed our conversation. I want to make sure everybody here knows more about your background and your expertise. Would you tell us a little bit about you? Sure. Um, So as you said, uh, my original training was in economics. Uh, But sometime shortly after I got my Ph.D., I thought, this is a little too narrow a framework for me. I enjoyed it. I like the foundation, but I wanted to uh, entertain and be involved in uh, more of the human enterprise. And so, uh, hook and crook, I found myself in the world of um, management, management theory, and organization dynamics. And around the same time, I got exposed to a particular school of thought, which we could call the psychoanalysis of organizations. Um, That was through some uh, kind of influential training experiences I had with the Tavistock model, which is a form of uh, T-group model for understanding group dynamics. And it has a particular strength in linking group dynamics to business issues And from there, uh, I joined a research center at the Wharton School that focused on the link between theory and practice. Uh, We developed that research center uh, with great success, and eventually a group of us left to found our own firm called CIFAR, Center for Applied Research, which just recently 
has been noted as among the top 100 consulting firms by the Forbes uh, magazine list. And um, it really has taken me on a long journey through, as you note, the professional society that I helped to found, the International Society of the Psychoanalytic Study of Organizations, to bring to bear uh, ultimately my two bases of expertise. On the one side, a deep respect for economics and business and the foundations of value creation. And on the other, on the other side, a, a real respect for the human dynamics of enterprise. So that's kind of where I sit, right in the intersection of those two domains. And like any other career, it evolved uh, a bit by happenstance. And of course, in retrospect, you can see the great plan underlying it. <laughs> well, I, I, I love to hear you talk about that path from economics over to uh, the psychoanalytics of organizations. And, you know, I'm curious for the, those who are listening, um, it might be helpful to have you give us a definition about what are the psychodynamics of organizations? What is meant by that phrase? Sure. Well, what is meant by that phrase is the, the kind of fundamental hypothesis, or you might say assumption, working assumption that uh, any work worth its doing entails risk. And the risk is in some way the, the, the reward results in the reward of organizations with profits. Risk and return are deeply linked in a capitalist society, capitalist economy. And on the other side, risk is not something abstract. It's not just a mathematics or a set of numbers. It's in, internally experienced vividly. Uh, viscerally as anxiety, as anticipation, as excitement, as dread. And the psychodynamics of organizations presumes that this experience of risk and its two-sided quality facing outwards toward the marketplace and inwards toward our internal experiences together shape how people work together and how can they more and how can they more effectively work together. So you kind of need bifocal vision, um, understanding the vicissitudes of relatedness, when people feel authorized to do their work, when they feel unclear about their work, when they feel as if the risks that they're called upon to manage, are, they don't have the resources and the skills and the aptitudes for it, or they don't have the organization design that supports it, all those dimensions, and at the same time, a recognition that the purpose of all of this work is ultimately to produce something of value in the marketplace. And uh, what we say in the psychodynamics of organizations is that there's an interplay and a kind of tension back and forth between, on the one hand, people uh, acknowledging and going forward toward the risk and toward the value creation process that's toward the work. And on the other hand, because of the anxiety, they move away from the work, away from the risk, toward various forms of defenses, both at the individual and the social level. So it's a constant byplay uh, kind of between a pro sort of an approach avoidance conception of how people experience their roles at work. And as consultants, we're enjoined to help people face the work itself and come to understand their individual and social defenses that are getting in their way. And that involves a thoughtful consultation around both process and, uh, you know, the business prospects. 
So I want to make sense. Yeah, I mean it does. It's a lot. So let me let me break it down a little bit and and yeah. start with the idea again of risk. And what I hear you saying is that um, in many ways risk is the the defining condition for um, what happens next. And the the, the right. idea of risk is is external. In other words, the risk right. that we take in the marketplace or as we bring our 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 value forward in, into the world. But there's also this inner uh, experience of risk, and that's experienced Correct. by individuals who are working alone and together to uh, endeavor to do the thing. And so, really interesting to me to take the idea, to take the concept of risk and understand it as both an external condition uh, uh, toward which we, we strive, and also an internal condition out of which I imagine human development comes, right? How do we, how do we step up and meet our challenges. Right. Do I have Perfectly that? said. Okay. Perfectly said. And it's not, and it, it's, uh, you know, and the, of course, there's always the avoidance of risk, the wish not to develop, which is a strong current in, in human experience. Uh, we're comfortable with what we have and who we are, and we don't want to be stretched. On the other hand, we do want to be stretched. So there's a recognition in the psychodynamics of organizations of these sort of inner conflicts. So it's a little different from various uh, theories of management and organization that tend to idealize the human element as if everyone wants more participation or wants more growth. We recognize that these are elements of conflict inside people. And and to be realistic, we need to acknowledge those internal conflicts Mm -hmm. that people experience. And this happens at the most mundane level. You know, if you think of... uh, somebody who's a retail clerk in a clothing store, uh, the first thing we do in this sort of situation is we ask, hey, what's the risk that they're managing? Well, you you think a little bit about it, and you know that uh, one fundamental risk is how you approach the customer. If you're too intrusive, uh, you may chase the customer away. If you're not intrusive enough, you may not... uh, Make a sale, you may not get the customer to appreciate the range of clothing in the store. Well, that's fundamental to the experience. How does the, how does the retail clerk do that? And also, how does management support the doing of that? And so it's, it's a very, you know, we can, we can examine risk at many levels of aggregation. Is, there, is risk, um, I want to bring out the word fear for a moment, right? What makes something yeah. risky is that it triggers or taps into a fear that we might have otherwise perhaps it wouldn't seem risky so yeah so so that's it's it's interesting because i, I want to hear you talk for a moment larry about the um uh, you know almost like a fear inspired approach versus perhaps an alternative approach yes uh, if, uh the uh, the fear is usually first and foremost an assault on self-esteem, the fear of performance failure. Um, That's the first trigger. It may not be necessarily fear of losing one's job, although that could be a factor too. But as you get into higher levels of management, I think it's self-esteem that is the primary driver. But we want to be two-sided here. 
that some people thrive on the risk. They stretch themselves. It's exciting. Um, you know, we have this uh, phenomenon in the culture of extreme sports. You speak to traders on Wall Street. Um, the fear is there. It's visceral. If it were not, they couldn't be good traders. But it's also um, sublime. They talk about um, giving themselves over to the stock market, to the market in the sense of the stock market, and uh, the, the joy in knowing that they could be run over because it's a power much greater than themselves. But if they survive and they succeed and they thrive and they flourish, look what they've accomplished. So there's a lot of dynamics there. We have to not be one-dimensional in our conception of how these different emotional experiences come together. Hmm. And, I'm, and I, I want to go back for a moment to you and your story again, because this yeah. is such a fascinating field. And you mentioned that you sort of started in economics and found yourself moving in this direction. How did you become interested in this? Was there something that happened or was there an insight you had? Um, I think I was always psychologically tuned. I was always interested in people. And even as I was pursuing a fairly technical degree in economics, I went to MIT. Um, I was always interested in Sigmund Freud and his writings. Uh, I married a psychotherapist. Uh, so that was always there in the background for me. And then I did have some uh, very fundamental experiences in a um, a form of team dynamics training that some people of your audience may be familiar with called the Tavistock approach to group dynamics. And that was very, that was character shaping for me. And through the influence of that experience and also some peers and mentors who were available to me, I found my way into this uh, way of working. Interesting. And, Go ahead. No, no, that's that's, that's how you did it. Yeah, and that. you've referred a couple of times to this this um, Tavistock approach, and could you just yeah. say in a nutshell, if you can, what what that refers to? Yeah, yeah, this Tavistock approach is a uh, theory of organizations. Again, I'm sort of underlines what I said before, in which. Uh, Fundamental is the notion of what the task is. Uh, what is our primary task in this enterprise? What are we being paid for? Why do people give us money? Well, how do we create value? Why is it valuable? So those, those issues are of primary importance to both individual level and executive level functioning. And what are, what's getting in the way of our taking up this task? What but in the way of the dangers it creates, the way in which we distribute the risks of that of the task amongst us, the way in which we constitute authorization to pursue the task, all those organizational and emotional questions are oriented toward this fundamental question. And often in our consulting, we what we work with clients is to clarify the primary task to really understand what it is that they're trying to accomplish as a way of understanding, um, you know, the, the presenting issues. So should I give an example of that? Yeah, I think helpful? so. Or, I think so. I was actually just yeah. forming one of my minds. So go ahead. Yeah, so, so for example, if you have a merger of two companies, often uh, the presenting issue is what's the culture, what's the, how do we integrate the cultures? But if you actually get into the situation, that's a bit of a defensive question. The real question is how does the, the acquired company's value creation process, how can it be 
uh, amplified and res- both they respected and amplified inside the acquiring company's value creating process because unless the two were identical, I've, we've acquired a company because it presents something unique. And that involves some understanding of what that value creating process is and also how it's challenged in light of it being acquired. So, for example, if you have a, let's say, just make up an example of a, um, a service business, let's call it uh, spas, you know, and we have one small company that has a very special local orientation toward the, the running of its spas based on cro- close customer contact and uh, knowledge of the local arena, area, whatever. You can build up a picture of that. And then you have a larger company that can scale spas ad infinitum with a procedure and standards. Well, how does one acquire the other and respect each side? That's the fundamental task. Culture can often look like a flight from looking at that fundamental question. I love that. That's a great distinction. And and uh, you mentioned earlier that one of the first things you do is often to help to clarify that primary or fundamental task. Um, we have about a, a minute or so before we take a break, Larry, but um, I, I'm curious about, just if you could tell us a little bit about who's tapping into you, you, you for this kind of perspective and work. Who are your clients? Uh, yeah, we have a range of clients. Uh, uh, just recently, just beginning to work with a, a merger, uh, mm-hmm. actually. Uh, we have uh, research institutes um, that uh, we're working with um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the biomedical field. Uh, universities uh, mm-hmm. at several universities um, and various functions within within universities. Uh, we've do a lot of work in professional service firms, uh, architecture, law, um, consulting firms, and uh, there's a group of us inside CFAR that specializes in family businesses. Where you can imagine the integrated dynamics of family emotion and relatedness between the generations and the business are is central mm-hmm. to understanding how these enterprises work. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the range of clients that we have. Thank you. I think that's great to hear. It's, it's diverse, and I think that's the point I wanted to explore is sort of the, uh, the applicability of how you approach um, the challenge of psychodynamics of organizations um, across industries and types of firms, types of companies. Um, it sounds incredibly um, valuable and interesting work. Um, and when we come back from the break, Larry, I'd love to dive into this a little bit more and talk more specifically about this dynamic of um, consultants and leaders working together. And I want, we'll, just look, sure. we'll look at it from both perspectives. Um, my guest today is uh, Dr. Larry Hirshhorn. He's talking with me today about psychodynamics of organizations, and le- that our theme is leaders and coaches working together, so, and consultants working together. We'll be back right after the break. Stop. 
stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, research, and education about the nature and requirements of leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop and sustain worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches dedicated to awakening, engaging, and supporting the leadership required in the world today to create a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer three cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching, the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership, and the Certificate in Facilitation. We also offer a range of ICF-certified advanced coach education courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email itlprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host. Welcome back once again. I'm Kate Ebner, and I'm speaking today with Larry Hirshhorn, an acclaimed author and recognized expert on the topic of the internal psychodynamics of organizations. He was the 2008 recipient of the Elliot Jacques Award from the Society of Consulting Psychology, and uh, is here with us today. Really, uh, we're about to dive into our topic and really explore um, understanding psychodynamics in the from the lens of consultants and also from the lens of the leader. So. Um, Larry, before the break, you really did a great job of um, explaining what this is and and uh, giving us an understanding of the kind of um, uh, approach and method um, that you might use. Um, I'd love to to begin with the question of um, how do group dynamics affect decision making and the execution of important strategies? In other words, the leaders thinking about the external as well as the organizational or the internal, um, how do group dynamics affect the leader's approach? Yes. Uh, well, you have several d- dimensions. One a very common um, uh, process is something I, uh, we call ritualization or ritualizing. Um, and that is decision processes take on the quality of rituals, which means they're disconnected from the substance of the issues that have to be taken up. There's a very famous uh, story of um, um, blocking on the head of the IB guy who took over IBM. What was his name? 
Hold on, I'll get it. Well, anyway, I'll, I'll, it'll come to me. Um, this was when IBM was in real crisis, and um, he discovered that um, the top or the top committee that reported directly into the CEO shockingly made no decisions. Um, and what did that mean? It meant that the staff working with vice presidents across all the divisions of IBM would come up uh, with a set of priorities that were then presented to the executive staff as if they were being reviewed for a kind of a thoughtful decision-making. But in some fundamental way, the fix was in. And... Um, the question is why? Why was that the case? And one could. This was at a time when IBM was in, ex, uh, in a significant period of underperformance, and there was some threat that it would have to be broken up. So, what you could say, from the point of view of the psychodynamics of organizations, is that um, the the process of decision making, having become ritualized, uh, made it almost impossible to confront the central business dilemma, which was how IBM could remain competitive in a situation in which um, uh, new computer manufacturers were emerging, new hardware providers, new software providers, new database providers, new service providers. It was a fundamental competitive question for IBM, and it was, not, it was almost incapable of assessing its own situation because of the decision system it had ritualized through this process of making the executive staff, the executive committee, actually impotent, not powerful. Uh, I'm just bothered by not being able to give you the name of this um, the guy. I just want to look it up. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's funny. Hold on a second. Uh, I'm going to find it in a second. Well, we'll, we'll come to, I'll come to that, but you, you understand what I'm saying as a I do. kind I of do. Um, example? Yeah. And I'm struck by the phrase you used a moment ago that um, the ritualized decision-making process created an inability to assess the true situation. And, right. Um, right. and I, as I'm taking that in that idea, I'm struck by the problem that that probably is for many organizations really to... Um, to have um, institutionalized processes around decision making such that um, it's difficult to make good decisions. That's, that's fascinating. Yes, uh, the person was Lou Gerstner. I don't know why yes. I locked on his name. You may familiar, be familiar with his I am. name. I am. Uh, and, by, and, by, and by the way, he, he, he um, uh, eliminated the executive committee, which was a kind of a shock to people. And undertook a series of decisions which were quite compelling in the sense that they really forced the issue. For example, he uh, essentially slashed the price of the IBM mainframe, which required his salespeople to sell a lot more mainframes in order to cover the expenses. And also it led to the slashing of expenses as well, of course. But uh, it was breaking that kind of coalition of staff resources, divisional vice presidents, and their uh, relationship to the executive committee that enabled them to take leadership. So that's a, an example of how group dynamics interferes in, in, uh, in decision making. Another method, another dynamic is what we call moralization. Uh, 
when when companies face critical turning points, they often moralize the earlier way in which they did business. It becomes something that's both good and beautiful as opposed to simply something that's pragmatic. So, for example, when Polaroid uh, used to produce the instant prints and cameras faced competition from increasingly uh, cell phones and the like, they couldn't get past the idea that their their primary uh, product was the most beautiful print possible. And one that could mimic, uh, you know, color color photos that were printed in laboratories. They couldn't get past that idea, even though they had capabilities, for example, to to build digital printers. But they decided not to pursue that because they thought that the images produced by printers were not sufficient. So there's a kind of moralizing process, uh, in addition to a ritualizing process. And sometimes there's also a personalizing process, which instead of seeing the structural conflicts for what they are, we tend to see them as conflicts between people. So if you look at the history of Steve Jobs and uh, Scully, John Scully uh, at an Apple Corporation, that took on a very personal cast, but the real structural question was why the Mac division was not succeeding and why ultimately Jobs had to go because of its fit, the failure of the Mac division. So those are three decision processes we've identified, moralizing, personalizing, ritualizing, all three of which um, uh, interfere in confrontation to the underlying business question. And part of the consulting process is to help an executive see through those things and come back into contact with the business question. And is it difficult? I mean, I wonder wonder if it's hard to see the dynamics when you're in the middle of them. Yes, I think that's that's why the consultant is called upon to to provide assistance to, to highlight them. And to highlight those dynamics. And the dynamic of uh, the first step of, of clarifying the primary task is in a way, is a way of untangling the leader from the circumstances or the, the, the way of looking at things um, to reframe and redefine the most important consideration. And the leader, the leader, a leader, depending on what leader of what, the division, the enterprise, the department, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. the leader himself may feel unprepared to face the primary task. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. they themselves may not feel competent, in which case they, it takes some courage on their part to acknowledge their limitations in that regard. And it may be fate limiting, or it may be career limiting limitations, so... Mm-hmm. That's also a dilemma. That's, that's, those are the circumstances in mm-hmm. which subordinates uh, understand in a visceral way that they need new leadership. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as, as I'm listening to you talk, what strikes me is the, a quality of detachment that uh, probably as a consultant you bring, um, but that I'm sure is necessary to this. In other words, I'm hearing you describe very human behaviors like moralizing that the earlier way was the best way or the right way, you know, the the human perspective. And and we know that work is accomplished um, not only by, but largely by human beings. And so there's a human dimension in in work. Um, And I don't hear you saying that it's good or bad. I hear you saying the human dimension can actually skew or obscure the task. Is that right? Yes, uh, absolutely, yes. 
But the human dimension is also the source of imagination and vitality and ambition and mm-hmm. the wish to succeed. And yeah, well, I mean, it's it's like any, as we know, it's multidimensional. And uh, I think the key in consulting is not the idea, not to, not to have an ideology about it. That's where the kind of stances that participation is good or empowerment is good and these sort of things tend to be, tend to deflect one's attention from what's really at stake. If you look at uh, the case of Yahoo, um, Barissa Mayer, who has not succeeded in transforming Yahoo and will be entertaining bids for his sale, if not right now, then very soon, um, uh, had a concept of leadership which I could only describe as close to servant leadership, you know. It's the idea of the leader getting out of the way because the organization interferes in the accomplishment of objectives. It's sort of a vision of organization as bureaucracy and a conception of groups as spontaneous and inherently productive. I call that ideological. And here in this case, you can see the defensive aspect because she faced a very difficult cut task, which is Yahoo as a directory of the web was no longer, was obsolete. It, was, it could no longer provide the value it had. Uh, how was she to, to engage the web in a new, with a new vision of the web? Uh, that she was not going to get from just getting out of the way. That required a, a task of leadership and potentially some big bets, which she wasn't prepared to make. So, so um, Again, the, the stance here is not not, um, not an ideological stance, but a recognition of the fullness of human experience and human emotion. That's, and so I, I, I think this is very important, and I'm hoping that for people listening, this is um, striking you as well, because I, I think um, we are so wedded to our way of seeing things. And so um, to step back and really examine what is the primary task, it's so important. I'm curious as a consultant coming into an organization, um, Larry, how do you enter? How do you, how do you get the lay of the land and, and begin this uh, work? Yeah. Well, there, there are several different approaches. I, I uh, rely, I prefer to rely on when I can on something I could call uh, the working note. Um, and that's once I get authorization from the hiring authority, the people that hire the consultant, and I'm clear about who my client is. I do, of course, the customary interviews and assessment of uh, business Itself and sometimes looking, I look at the financials and the like. But what I do as an entry process is I write a working note which is interpretive, which sort of lays out my best sense of the situation as it is within the framework of hypotheses. Uh, you know, I, I sort of uh, term this a kind of a exercise in, in hypothesis building about the enterprise and try to, as best as possible, uh, link the, the kind of presenting issues that people describe in terms of their relatedness to each other or their, the dilemmas of their business to what I intuit uh, uh, to be and propose to be sort of the business questions, uh, the primary task questions that they're facing. And I offer this note to an executive team or a group or whoever, the, whoever, the, whoever is the right construction to receive that note. 
and that becomes the basis for the formulation of an intervention uh, so that from the very beginning we have a shared understanding of what we're trying to accomplish. But it's very, it's very bespoke. It's not survey-based. I don't use instruments. Uh, it really is sort of a, imagine the journalist coming into an organization attuned to both uh, politics, uh, power, task, how would you say something in a way to your clients that doesn't insult them or shame individuals, but does get to the, helps them approach the heart of what they're wrestling with? So that, that's, a, that's a methodology that I use. Mm-hmm. And, and um, what are you looking for from a leader who's inviting you in and saying, we need to make change? I mean, how do you know this is a worthwhile uh, proposition to get involved with. What are you looking for? I think I think any request is legitimate. Any request is worthwhile. The, the only issue is becomes what is the um, what is the appetite of the of the client, mm-hmm. and how much how much development they want to go through, and how much introspection they want to to uh, entertain. Um, so I, I don't quite, uh, you know, I don't typically yeah. qualify clients in that way. Yeah. yeah, and and um, and and I'm I'm curious about the the question simply because you might go in and in your um, in your interviews and in your process of really getting a handle on the situation, come back with a, a larger problem or a more complex problem than the leader was originally anticipating. Does that ever happen? Uh, let me think of some examples about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is something very important about the presenting question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think that's really true. You you have to manage whether you go outside the 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 frame of the presenting question. On the other hand, you do have to challenge the presenting question if it's not adequate to the task. Um, yeah. Let me let me think think more about that and come yeah. back to it. Sure. And you know we're going to take a break in just a moment, but I yeah. Yeah. I I would um, I would love to have you maybe just in, in a, a quick one minute version of a success story, an example of um, of some work you've done where you've been able to really help. Yeah. Okay. Oh, right now you mean. Um, um, Yes, I worked with a, a research organization in which, um, you know, there were considerable tensions around uh, the organization of the research and different characters with different sp- specializations and tasks and functions and a project manager who faced a significant uh, challenge in integrating the different activities and um Working both with the project manager and the head of the research institute, uh, we were able to come to a conception of what the purpose of the research, of the research undertaking was, and uh, uh, how they how best to organize the resources to accomplish it. So that's just a very recent example. 
That's wonderful. Well, we're going to take a break right now. Um, my guest today, Dr. Larry Hirshhorn, and I are talking about um, the dynamics, psychodynamics of organizations. We're going to explore a little bit more about this when we come back. And um, Larry, I really want to say thank you for, for the focus we've given to this, um, the presenting issue and the, the identification of the primary task, because I think that's a very yeah. significant piece. We'll be right back. Markets up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free 866 472 5790. That's 866 472 5790. Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL is an international center for inquiry, research, and education about the nature and requirements of leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop and sustain worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches dedicated to awakening, engaging, and supporting the leadership required in the world today to create a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer three cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching, the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership, and a Certificate in Facilitation. We also offer a range of ICF Certified Advanced Coach Education courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email itlprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Inside Transformational Leadership. Produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host. Hi, this is Kate Ebner. I'm speaking today with uh, Larry Hirshhorn, and we're talking about the psychodynamics of organizations. Um, Larry, we've been talking about it from a couple different angles here. We've talked about it from... Uh, the kind of challenge a leader might face. We've talked about the way that group dynamics affect decision-making and execution. We've talked about it from a consultant's perspective. And um, I would love to um, dive back into the conversation about how um, leaders and consultants work together to really solve problems. And I wonder, as you um, go into organizations, and let's say you've got that primary task clear, and you understand what the starting point is, um, what happens next in the consulting process? Yeah. 
Yeah, so I thought maybe I could give you an example, a somewhat extended example of a consultation we did with a major university hospital. Um, this is because it's a good example because it highlights some of the issues you were asking about the, the tension between the presenting issue, the developing issue, or, you know, how those issues get transformed over time. Uh, the first, our first encounter with the hospital uh, was through the chief learning officer who said there were complaints about professionalism, particularly in the behavior between physicians and nurses, stress in the surgical suite, um, people getting irascible or angry at each other, uh, and in, in the extreme surgeons throwing instruments in the room. So these are not uncommon dynamics in very high stakes uh, high-risk hospital settings. Um, but when we looked at the issue around prefer- professional professionalism, we, we, we determined that, that, that a training program wasn't going to do the trick, that the issue was really the, the conditions under which people felt um, stressed and also protected from the stress. Um, we, so we started to use the language of there are obviously stresses and risks in these environments, but there are also other protective factors which make it able for, able for people to bear up under the stress and not act out. What are those? And that introduced a different conception of the presenting issue. It wasn't about individual behavior and about training people, but really about the construction of environments. And that led to this idea that... Um, Interdisciplinary rounding conferences were an important protective factor. These are conferences when physicians, nurses, and other professionals go visiting the patients in the hospital together and talk about the patient plans. Typically in the past that had done but with physicians and residents alone and didn't involve nurses or pharmacists. So we said one protective factor is the interdisciplinary rounding conference. And we held a large you know, about a 150-person event in which we found that cases of rounding conferences going on, and we had people bring in videos of what they were doing. So this enlarged the question of what it was they were facing by way of managing the highly charged emotions that people feel when they are working together in acute care hospitals. This then touched on an uh, initiative that the chief medical officers of the different hospitals within this hospital system had undertaken, which they called the blueprint for quality. The problem was they had developed that without collaboration of the chief nursing officers. So it kind of died after it was developed. It was more of an idea rather than actually a program on how to ensure quality. This led to an ongoing series of meetings that we facilitated between the chief medical officers and the chief nursing officers. So we were working with them. And in fact, in the interdisciplinary rounding conference, toward its end, we had this idea of creating a fishbowl event where the chief medical officers and chief nursing officers met together and made joint commitments to the 150 people who were at the conference saying, this is what we're going to do on your behalf to make our work uh, effective and to uh, uh, make our work both recognize the charge nature of our work, but also help to contain the, the kind of feelings and anxieties that we feel in accomplishing this work. So after meeting with them, this group of executives, nursing and medical officer executives, 
decided to develop a new method of organizing work at the unit level, at the ward level, uh, which was to be an interdisciplinary group of um, um, nurses, a nurse, uh, a, a physician, a quality professional, and a pharmacist. And they would operate this as a team at the unit level. This was quite a radical undertaking. And this and this began to take hold. This influenced the budgeting process that the CMOs and CNOs, chief medical office, chief nursing officers wanted to undertake to, in order to get the resources to staff these new teams. And they realized that in the past they had been the victims a bit of budget targets being provided by the kind of financial side of the house without influencing it in terms of clinical imperatives. Anyway, you can get a feel for how our consultation process evolves. There's a learning process. There's a discovery process. Um, and if you're in a good alliance with the client, you, you become part of what they're trying to build, what they're trying to develop. How long does a process like that take? Oh, this was a good two-year undertaking. Yeah. Uh, it involves both building relationships, different multiple relationships with different clients. Uh, but, but I think uh, you know, the learning orientation of the client and the consulting team is critical in this. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you would be. Imagine if they had said, we have a problem with professionalism, and uh, they would go to an expert team, expert consulting firm in training doctors and surgeons not to get angry, right? Hmm. Hmm. The, the, whole, the whole process would have been short-circuited. Yeah, yeah. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't have been able to tap into what, they're, what they were capable of and what their energies were and what they were aiming for. So that, that's, that's kind of what we look for. That's a great, that's a great example. Thank you. Um, I wonder, you know, what are some common mistakes, just to sort of build on the point you just made, what are some common mistakes that consultants make when they enter a system, also called an organization, and come with a lens to try to help? Um, well, the sort of um, the tool, the tool, fo- the tool fetish. You know, we have a tool. When you have a hammer, everything is a nail. A tool is what we have, so we're going to use it with you. And there's a strong temptation to do that because that's how consulting firms can scale their own efforts. Right? We have the tool, we apply it, we have a method for reporting back, and then we have a series of steps to to uh, take and implementing the results of what the tool shows, a survey, whatever it is. Um, the, the risk of all that, of course, is that it's not in touch with the lived experience of the organization and what actually the dynamics that, that we've been talking about throughout mm-hmm. this interview. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that, that's kind of one typical mistake. And the other is to or process consultants to imagine that... Um, Emotional emotionality is itself a measure of engagement. Um, uh, I did a study of some of the transformation of the New York Times, um, uh, some of the dilemmas in the transformation of the New York Times as a journalistic enterprise. That's what I won the Alia Jakes Award mm-hmm. for in mm-hmm. that study. Uh, and um, you know, at one point there was a consultant there who was meeting with the executive team, consisted of the publisher and the executive editor, and uh, the consultant uh, 
takes the stance of, you know, what, tell me the rules of the road of this team. But first, the consultant wants them to kind of talk about how to improve things, and it, it kind of falls flat, and in falling flat, the consultant says, well, tell me about the rules of the road here. And then he provokes people in the executive team, that is the editor and his executive, uh, the masthead executives, to, um, you know, start to attack the executive editor uh, and the executive editor then gets very angry and the consultant sort of, he imagined the motion now was what he was after rather than actual and, and what the what the executive editor says if I can get the quote here maybe I can't find it right now but something like what is all this nonsense stop working like this what, let's talk about our real problems let's get down and solve them target them you know he was asking for some real work and the consultant was asking for emotionality uh, that's another Common example mistake, yeah. that process can talk, can sometimes make you know, as yeah, we, yeah. I think that's that's a great example, and and you know, I I, I want to shift gears a little bit in the last couple minutes that we have here. Um, I, I have done a lot of work with vision and helping leaders and organizations to um, see a future, to describe a future to people, and ultimately to lead that future into into real life and. I'm wondering from your perspective, how, especially given what we talked about related to risk um, and the fact that sometimes when there is a bold vision for the future, people perceive risk. So how do you think a leader can take on a bold visionary agenda and at the same time create safety or a positive call to action from followers? But I guess I'm referring back to the conversation about risk. Right, and, and that, a vi- that, under condi- that a vision can, under conditions, can, under certain conditions, be a, fo- a search vision can be a social defense against the dilemmas the executive has for actually engaging people in the real work that they're called upon to do. Um, so I, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of vision. Um, I mean, when you, when you think about vision in the, in, in the, in, of, an, of a founder, for example, uh, mm-hmm. Sam, Walt, uh, Sam Walton of Walmart, he had a very simple vision, which was to big, very big stores in, at uh, the intersection of small towns in the South. It was a very compelling idea, and of course he had tremendous capacities to execute on it to ensure low prices. Um, but I, I guess what I'm saying to you is, I would first want to find out what the call for vision actually means. Mm-hmm. What is what is what is at work here? What is often often the issue is not so much vision as it is a read of the current situation and the emergent forces within it. Um, what did what did Marissa Mayer face at Yahoo? Was it vision, or was what was the emergent dimensions of the web to which she could make some big bets against? Uh, yeah. yeah, was it yeah. becoming an entertain? You know what I'm saying? I do, uh, I do. Uh, I appreciate uh, that, and I think that's a great. Um, nuanced perspective that will be very helpful to people. We're down into the final seconds of our show here, Larry, but I know people may be yeah. interested in finding out more about your work. Very quickly, can you just tell tell our listeners how they might be in touch with you? 
Sure. Uh, if they uh, go to our website, uh, cfar.com, that's C as in Charlie, F as in Frank, ar.com, there's lots of information about the company, and you can get access to my email and myself on, on that site. And there's also a site called ISPSO, I, S as in Sam, P as in Peter, S as in Sam, O dot org, which is our uh, psychoanalytic organization society. Those, so there'd be two ways of getting in touch with me and also the work that I do. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being with me this hour. This has been a really fascinating conversation and I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Inside Transformational Leadership. Please tune in for another edition next Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our programs, please visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. We'll talk again next week.